In this series, we will be studying the plan of a building called the tabernacle. And this is an incredibly important part of Scripture. There are only two chapters in the entire Bible dealing with creation. There are 42 chapters dealing with the tabernacle plan. There's much beauty and much meaningful detail here. And scholars have literally spent lifetimes unpacking all the powerful typology and shadows and truth found in the tabernacle. Now, all we're going to do in this little series is hit the highlights, and we're going to cover an overview of this most important structure in the Scripture. The tabernacle was a movable tent that God commanded Moses to build. God gave him precise instructions about materials and dimensions and the structure of this tent while Moses was on Mount Sinai, just 11 months after the exodus from Egypt. Everything was designed so it could be disassembled and reassembled in record time because Israel was supposed to be on the move to their promised land. And the tabernacle remained central to Israel's worship and their sacrificial worship system for nearly five hundred years. After their wandering in the wilderness and the conquest of Canaan, the tabernacle was set up first at Shiloh and later at Gibeon until Solomon finally packed it all up and brought all the furniture of the tabernacle to Jerusalem to put in a permanent structure that we know as the temple. Now the temple was larger and it had some extra auxiliary areas. But the temple was required to have the same essential floor plan as the tabernacle. Here's why. Because God's plan for worship, God's plan for blood atonement, and God's plan for salvation had not changed. You see, the tabernacle was this little miniature picture, this little microcosm of God's intention for creation since the beginning of time. Our holy God wanted to dwell among sinful human beings and have a relationship with them. But that relationship could only function properly if the people put the tent together properly. No error was allowed in the construction of the tabernacle. They had to follow God's directions exactly. And if they followed God's directions exactly, then God promised He would dwell with them. Here's what he said in Exodus 25. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Everyone say dwell. That was God's purpose. According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle. Everybody say pattern. So if you obey the pattern, I will come and dwell among you. And the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Don't make any change to it. Don't adjust it or adapt it. You do it as I've said, and if you follow my pattern, I will come and dwell with you. The tabernacle is referred to in several ways in Scripture. It's called the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the sanctuary, the holy sanctuary, the tabernacle, of course, the tent of the testimony, the tent of the congregation. And God also referred to it one more way, which we're going to study a little bit in this series. God also referred to it as a house of prayer. Isaiah spoke these words, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house 
shall be called an house of prayer for all people. Of course, that's the scripture Jesus quoted when he was cleansing the temple because they hadn't kept it according to the pattern, but Jesus wanted it to revert back to the pattern. Now, the tabernacle or the temple, because they have the same floor plan, the tabernacle or the temple aren't the only places in Scripture where God dwelt or wanted to dwell. There are basically three other places in Scripture where God wanted to dwell and did dwell, and we see them throughout the Bible. Of course, the most important one is Jesus Christ, that God robed himself in flesh. John said it this way, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, that word means he tabernacled among us. God built a tabernacle of flesh and he came and lived here. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in addition to the tabernacle or temple, God also dwelled in the person of Jesus Christ. But then there's another place where God chose to dwell. And we read about it in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Can you imagine the privilege we have here tonight? That in the Old Testament it was a building. In the Old Testament it was a physical pattern. In the Old Testament it was blood sacrifices and animals slaughtered and priesthood and feast days and all of that. And that was so God could tabernacle or dwell among His people. Do you understand that you are the tabernacle, you are the temple, you are the dwelling place of God. And so God lives in you the same way His glory filled that ancient tent. His glory lives in you because you're the church. That's the third place God chose to dwell. In the temple or tabernacle, in the person of Jesus Christ. But can you get this? He chose to dwell in his church. He chose to dwell in believers. And that's worth thanking God for because we don't have to do the tabernacle. We get to have God living inside of us. There's no greater privilege. That's amazing. And there's one more place. It's the fourth place you see mentioned in Scripture. Revelation records it this way. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. The final time in scripture that we see God dwelling among his people is in the new Jerusalem when we all get to heaven. And that's going to be incredible. So those are different places in scripture where God dwelt. But the important thing to know is that the tabernacle, that old tent, was the original blueprint for God's relationship with his people. It's the original way in which God painted a picture and said, this is what I want you to keep in mind when we have a relationship, when I dwell with you. And that tabernacle, that original tent, that original pattern, it foreshadows everything else that comes in the word of God. That's why it's so important. In other words, our relationship with God needs to follow this very same pattern. Now, in this little series, we're going to go for about four weeks. We don't need to get bogged down in the details of the construction of the tabernacle. You don't need to know all the boards and all the bars and all the ropes and all of that stuff. It's all wonderful. Theologians have spent literal lifetimes studying it. It's beautiful and powerful, but that's not what we're going to do in this series. In this series, we're going to try to understand the main principles of God's pattern. 
And in particular, we're going to start tonight, I want to share with you something that I think is so beautiful and so wonderful, so powerful and so profound, is that this tabernacle, this Old Testament tent, it is a fourfold prophetic picture. First of all, it's a picture of salvation. We're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. This is the most common way that we understand the tabernacle. And it's in Bible study charts that we share with people as we're explaining the gospel because the plan of salvation is pictured and diagrammed and typified in the tabernacle. But the tabernacle is more than just a picture of the plan of salvation. It is also this beautiful, detailed portrait of Jesus Christ because God tabernacled among us when Jesus came. And so it's a beautiful picture of Him. Here's something a lot of people miss. I, I've read a lot of books about the tabernacle, studied with different resources over the years, and a lot of people miss this, that the tabernacle is also a picture of you, your spiritual life, how you live for God. It's a picture of you. And finally, of course, as we've uh, heard a lot and read a lot over the last few years, uh, the tabernacle is also a picture of prayer, the praying through the tabernacle, and we'll talk about that as well. So I want to just kind of use tonight to do two things. I want to set the context of the tabernacle and show you what it's all about. And then I want to deal with this first issue, this first beautiful picture, how the tabernacle portrays salvation. So just for those of you that might not be as familiar with the tabernacle plan, we've got it laid out over here on this table and we've got some furniture there and it's not quite to scale. Uh, our masking tape and Moses' boards and bars and ropes weren't quite the same. Uh, but, but we've got it laid out there. But also, I want to show you a brief video and just uh, let you kind of immerse yourself in what the tabernacle would have looked like if you were a, a Jewish worshiper coming to worship way back in the Old Testament. So let's, let's take a look. some people they kind of get freaked out when we teach the word of God preaching is the anointed declaration of truth teaching is the anointed explanation of truth and I know when we get out models and video clips and 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 all, all kinds of screens and scriptures and whatever people think oh boy 
here we go. But the Word of God is just as powerful whether it's being preached or whether it's being taught. And Jesus wants to move in this room tonight. He wants some people to understand some things about this powerful plan of salvation that he's given us. So we're going to concentrate on three of the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, but I'd like to introduce you to uh, all of them uh, for just a moment. Because in the tabernacle plan, uh, the tabernacle furniture actually forms a cross. It, it's really amazing. If you were to look at the tabernacle, uh, there's two curtains. One is at the front entrance going into what we call the holy place. And then there's another curtain, and uh, that goes into the holy of holies. And, and those two curtains, actually, they separate. That's where the cross beam comes. So it's a vertical beam and a horizontal beam. And the furniture of the tabernacle literally forms the shape of the cross. It's, it's really, really amazing. Now... Um, they're going to help me over here. The first article of furniture that we come to in the tabernacle is this massive, massive altar. And it's called the brazen altar. It's the biggest piece of furniture in the tabernacle. It's absolutely amazing. In fact, every other piece of furniture uh, would fit inside this brazen altar. Every other piece would fit in here. So that's the first one we come to. There are three pieces that actually... Uh, deal with the salvation plan or deal with the new birth. The second piece that uh, we see as we walk through the tabernacle is the, the laver, the brazen laver. And this laver, um, it has, uh, it, it was the place where the priests, after they had sacrificed blood, they were covered with blood, they would come to the laver and they would immerse their hands in the water and uh, they would wash. And then if you go all the way through into the holy place, into the holy of holies, you come to the last piece of furniture. This is the, the, the vertical line. This is the salvation line. And, and this little piece of furniture, this is called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was a place where God's glory dwelt. And so if you put those three pieces of furniture in a straight line, you've got God's plan of salvation. You've got an altar where blood was shed. You've got a laver where the priests immersed their hands to wash. And you've got the place where God's glory rested. So you have a beautiful picture of repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And so those are the three pieces we're going to deal with tonight. But there were three other pieces in the tabernacle furniture, and they deal on that uh, horizontal beam. They deal with what happens after we are saved. They are the golden candlestick, and also the altar of incense, and finally the table of showbread. And they're beautiful pieces of furniture. So the candlestick, of course, it gave light to everything in the tabernacle. And it was, it was so very important because it was the only source of light inside that building that was natural. Flames were lit, oil was filled, and, and so that was the source of light. Across from it, you had... This little implement, this is called the table of showbread. This is where the priests, uh, they came in. They were allowed to eat this bread, and they prepared this bread, and so that's there. And, of course, bread represents the word of God, and so it's very important. And finally, you have this little tall altar that stood right in front of the veil, and this is called the altar of incense. This is where incense was burned. And so right here in the middle of the tabernacle, 
we have a vertical line that shows us the salvation plan, but then we have a horizontal crossbeam that shows us God's sanctification plan. We have the light, because Jesus was the light of the world. We have the incense, because Jesus was our intercessor. And we have the bread, the table of showbread, because Jesus was the bread of life. But they apply to us as well, and we'll talk about them in another part of this series. We are to be a witness, a light, the light of the world, the salt of the earth. And so the candlestick is our witness. We're to be prayer warriors. We're to talk to God on behalf of people. And, and, and so the, the candlestick is us talking to people on behalf of God. The altar of incense is us talking to God on behalf of people, on behalf of our needs. It's prayer. And then, of course, the table of showbread represents the bread of the word of God, which is our relationship with his word. And so even in the tabernacle plan, you see the cross. Now tonight, we're only going to talk about these three pieces of furniture that portray the new birth, salvation, that plan. So the very first one we want to talk about is the brazen altar, this big altar at the beginning, the largest piece of furniture in the tabernacle. But it wasn't just the largest piece, it was the very first piece of furniture that you came to upon entering the tabernacle of the Lord. And the blood that was shed on that altar, it impacted every other ceremony and every other piece of furniture. Because all of the pieces of furniture in the tabernacle were dedicated to the Lord with the application of blood. But it wasn't just that. After the priest had sacrificed an animal and had his hands drenched with blood, he would go wash in the laver and the blood would carry from the brazen altar into the brazen laver as he washed his hands. And then you know that once a year the high priest walked in behind the veil into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. And so those three articles that are in a straight line, they're the long piece of the cross. They're our vertical relationship with God. They're the salvation plan that we go through to get to God. Those three articles, the same blood, made each of them possible, and it started on the altar. It was impossible to enter into the tabernacle without blood being shed. Similarly, it is impossible to have any kind of relationship with Jesus Christ unless your life, your sins, your past has been put under his blood. That altar was made of brass. That's a symbol of judgment against sin. And the fire on that altar was never allowed to go out. God said, the fire shall ever be burning upon this altar. It was supernaturally ignited by God when the tabernacle was dedicated. God started the fire, but then it was their responsibility every single day to maintain the fire and never let it go out. It didn't matter whether they were traveling through the wilderness. It didn't matter whether people were tired or sick or, or away on vacation. If they did that sort of thing, then it still was a requirement. Don't ever let the fire go out on the altar. Can I tell you tonight that the fire of repentance that started the very first time you came to an altar, the very first time you bowed your knee to God, the very first time you called out on Jesus, that 
fire can never go out in your life or you're in trouble. Repentance isn't just for sinners. Repentance isn't just for new converts. Repentance isn't just for people that have never heard of Jesus before. Repentance is a privilege of every child of God and that altar should be the biggest thing in your life. Every day you should be putting your sins under the blood. Sins that you've committed and things that you might have omitted to do. You're not even sure what you might have done wrong but every day you have the privilege of saying Jesus keep me near the cross Jesus put me under the blood Jesus forgive me for things I've thought and said and done things that I don't even know that I did but God every day keep that fire burning on that altar it's your responsibility to maintain the fire God is not going to grab you by the scruff of the neck and pull you to an altar and shove you down on the floor on your knees and say now repent see repentance is your privilege repentance is my privilege repentance is our privilege and so we have the honor we have the unmistakable unspeakable honor of coming to God and saying Jesus I messed up again Jesus I didn't do it right Jesus, I've been lethargic. Jesus, I've been apathetic. And God is always ready to meet you at that altar. And it is that altar that is the foundation of our salvation. No other place was given by God for sacrifice. No other place was acceptable to God for sacrifice. You say, well, the altar, pastor, that's just the starting point. You're right. But without the starting point, you can't go any further. If you don't get to the altar without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. If you don't get to the altar, nothing else matters. We do believe in baptism here. You hear us say that all the time, but here's what we don't believe in. We don't believe in just dunking somebody in the water and they don't even have a sweet clue what they're doing. You know why? Because unless you go through the altar of repentance, it doesn't matter if you get wet in a baptistry font. That doesn't matter. What you've got to do first is you've got to say, God, I'm a sinner and I need you. I'm a sinner and I'm turning away from sin and I'm turning to you. That's how important that altar is and it wasn't pretty oh it looks nice and pristine in the pictures but it wasn't nice and pristine it was an ugly repulsive sight this was not meant to be pretty it was a place of judgment there is nothing beautiful about the slaughter of animals and it is that scene gory and bloody that points us to our own repentance and that is why repentance is not attractive to the world at all. They don't understand it, they don't get it, and they don't like it. Who does God think he is that he would demand that we ask for forgiveness? But see, if you've ever been to the altar, and if you've ever had God really forgive you, and if you've ever gone beyond that altar and experienced everything God had for you, you think that's a pretty place. You think that's a wonderful place. You're so grateful for the blood that covered your sin. It changes your perspective. It was Paul that said, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But to us who are saved, it's the power of God. 
No, an altar's foolish. A preacher demanding in this day and age, this enlightened era, that people should actually come to church and listen to the Bible and obey the scripture and go to an altar and kneel down and ask God for forgiveness, that seems like some antiquated notion from a bygone era. But if you've ever been to an altar and got set free, if you've ever been to an altar and had addiction broken, if you've ever been to an altar and had your life put back together, then all of a sudden that gory, bloody, grotesque place becomes a beautiful, powerful, liberating place. It's amazing. It's that scene right there that points us to our own repentance. It's not attractive to the world, but it is the only thing that works if you want your sins forgiven. That's why Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. It is your reasonable service. Once you went past the brazen altar, you came to the brazen laver, also made out of brass. And of all the furniture in the tabernacle, we have the least information about the brazen laver. There are no specific measurements given in Scripture whatsoever. But we do know that the sole purpose of the laver was washing. And this is amazing. Where did the water come from to fill the brazen laver when they were in the desert, in the wilderness, wandering from mountain to mountain, sand pit to sand pit, in a wilderness for 40 years? Where did the water come from for the laver? It came from the very same place they got their drinking water. You see, Paul would later write, they did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Don't miss that. You, you see, Israel was wandering in the wilderness. It was their own problem. It was their own sin. It was their own rebellion, and they wander, and so they, they walk all day. There's three million of them. They walk all day. They tear down camp. They pack everything up, and they walk through sand dune after sand dune in the blazing sun and in the terrible heat, and then they make camp that night and they're tired, and some of them are frustrated, and they're hungry and thirsty, and they get up the next morning, and the same rock that was outside their camp yesterday is sitting outside their camp today. There was a supernatural rock that followed them. Somebody said it was the original Rolling Stones. It followed them in the wilderness. Do you understand that this little piece of furniture over here, this brazen laver, do you understand that it was filled with water that came from that rock that followed them all around the wilderness? There was no other source of water most of the time. Now people say, well, baptism, that's just a ceremony. Baptism is just the preacher helping you join the church. Nothing could be further from the truth. Baptism has a supernatural significance. Baptism is more than you just getting wet and the preacher saying a little incantation over you. No, baptism is when you go down into the name of Jesus in the waters of baptism and that act has enough power to remit your sins. And so it was just water in a brazen labor. But that water had come by direction of God and so it was powerful. And baptism is powerful because it comes from direction of God. 
What's the lesson of the labor? The lesson is this, that when that priest took his bloodied hands and he immersed them in that water and began to wash, God met that priest in that water that came from that miraculous smitten rock. And God cleansed that priest by washing. No further ministry could be done in the tabernacle until the priest had washed. None. He couldn't go into the holy place. He couldn't go into the holy of holies if he was the high priest. No other ministry, no other function until he had washed. People say, well, is baptism that important in our relationship with Christ? My answer would be, absolutely, it's that important. And that's why there's no such thing in your Bible in the New Testament as a Christian who hadn't been baptized in the name of Jesus. Paul alludes to that in 1 Corinthians. He said, such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified. And how did it happen? In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I don't know if we got any of those were people in here tonight. I have a hunch that we do. You were something else, but tonight you're saved. You were something else, but tonight you're cleansed. You were something else, but tonight you've been washed thanks to the name of Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? And all prefigured and pictured and drawn out for us in this ancient structure called the tabernacle. I've just got one more tonight. We're just taking a, a highlight view tonight. And we've got some beautiful, beautiful things to share. Some of, the, some of this stuff, I've, I've looked at tabernacle and studied tabernacle for years, but some of this stuff is just brand new to me, and I'm just itching. But I can't do it all tonight, or you wouldn't come back next week. So, Or maybe you wouldn't need to if we did it all tonight. There's a third piece of furniture that is in that vertical line. Remember that the tabernacle's in the shape of the cross, and where those two curtains are, the curtain leading into the holy place and the curtain leading into the holy of holies, that's where it separates. And that section is the horizontal part of the cross. That deals with our sanctification. That deals with how we live for God. That's where the candlestick is and the altar of incense. And that's where the table of showbread is. That's the section that teaches us if we're going to live for God, we are going to need to be a witness we're going to need to have a prayer life and we're going to need to have a life in the Word of God. That's that middle section. But tonight we're just talking about the vertical section which starts at the brazen altar, goes through the brazen labor and then ends up straight ahead at the beautiful Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was this glorious piece of furniture. It wasn't made out of brass. It was overlaid with gold. And the Ark of the Covenant was the first piece of furniture that God gave instructions for. Because while it was at the far end of the tabernacle, it was the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle. You started at the altar. You couldn't get anywhere without the brazen altar. But you had to end up at the Ark of the Covenant. It was on that piece of furniture, this little box with the angels on the top, it was on that piece of furniture that the high priest sprinkled the blood of atonement once a year. It was from this piece of furniture that the voice of God literally spoke from between those two golden cherubims. God's audible voice was heard from this box. This was where his Shekinah presence dwelt 
right in between these cherubim. I told you that the candlestick provided the only light that was natural. It was lit. It had oil. and They lit it and filled up the oil every morning in the candlestick. That gave some natural light to the holy place. There was no candlestick in the Holy of Holies. Guess what lit up the Holy of Holies? It was the glory of God that rested on this little box. I have a hunch, I can't prove it, but I have a hunch it was brighter in the Holy of Holies than it was in the holy place because one was a candlestick with oil and wicks lit with fire, but the other was the glorious eternal presence of God dwelling between these angels. And his voice spoke from here. Number 7, verse 89. And when Moses was gone into the tabernacle of the congregation to speak with him, then he heard the voice of one speaking unto him from off the mercy seat that was upon the ark of testimony from between the two cherubims, and he spake unto him. The audible voice of God was literally heard speaking from this box, from between these angels. Now the initial sign of receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost, which that typifies, guess what it is? It's that God speaks supernaturally through you as his glory fills you. Now, we get all excited, those of us that love the Scripture and love to study, especially those of you that are a little studious or a little bit of a nerd or a Bible nerd. Is there such a thing? I know there's a computer nerd. And, and some of us get really ramped up on studying all the types and the shadows, and we get really ramped up on the book of Revelation and the horns and the hooves and the eyeballs and the eyelashes and the pimples and the whatever, of, of all those beasts, we really, we really overdose on that. And people get so excited about this box and the glory of God rested on it and God spoke from it and the blood was applied to it. I got one better than that. The blood has been applied to my life and the glory of God fills me by the power of the Holy Ghost and yes, the supernatural voice of God has spoken through me through the power of the Holy Ghost, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, through the evidence of speaking in other tongues. I'm just as good as that box. You might think the box is a big deal. I think the baptism of the Holy Ghost is the biggest deal this side of heaven. That's what I think. What a privilege it is to be filled with the power of God. You don't receive the Holy Ghost because you deserve it or because you're religious. You receive it because you followed God's pattern all the way through. You've repented, you've been baptized, and his blood that was shed first at the altar and carried all the way through, his blood paid the price for you to have the Holy Ghost. If you're in this Bible study tonight, if you're watching online right now and you don't have the Holy Ghost, you will never deserve the Holy Ghost. So stop thinking you gotta do it right or, or, or just do it perfect or, or you gotta get everything together. Stop thinking that because that's not how you get the Holy Ghost. You get the Holy Ghost by repenting of your sins and obeying the word of God to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And then the Bible says, if you'll do that, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
Holy Ghost. It's God's promise. You don't get it because you're so good. You get it because He's so good and His promise is so faithful. And He said, if you'll follow the pattern, I'll come through on the other end and I will fill you with my glory and I will speak through you. And the evidence is speaking in other tongues. And I love the Holy Ghost. But you always remember that without the cross of Calvary, you wouldn't have the privilege of having the Holy Ghost. Without the blood that was shed on Calvary, way back here at the brazen altar, without the blood that was shed, you couldn't get anywhere near the Holy Ghost because God was holy and you were sinful. God was righteous and you were evil. And you think, I was a good person, but see, we're all born in sin. And so we had a sin problem before we ever committed sin. That's why we needed an altar. That's why we needed a bloodshed. But the reason we're sitting here tonight in a church service, imagine, filled with the glory of God, filled with God's voice that speaks out of us as we worship Him and speak in tongues. The reason is because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and because you applied that blood when you knelt at an altar and asked God to forgive you of your sins. It's amazing. I hope the Holy Ghost, it's gotten old to everybody else. They've consigned the Holy Ghost to some little religious notion and everybody basically more or less has it. One lady told me one time, she said, I, I was born with the Holy Ghost. I said, nope, you weren't. I hope the Holy Ghost never gets old to the Pentecostals. I hope the Holy Spirit doesn't ever get to become so commonplace to us that we don't stop and just kind of in stunned wonder think, oh my goodness, I was just worshiping God and speaking in a language that I didn't learn. That's not gibberish. That's not babbling. Do you know what that is? That's the voice that spoke from between those angels on that Ark of the Covenant. That's that same voice of God that speaks through you. And when it speaks through you, Jesus said, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water you can birth something in the Holy Ghost when you pray in the Holy Ghost it's amazing it's amazing Acts chapter 2 and verse 4 they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they began to speak with other tongues the glory the spirit and the speaking it all goes together as the spirit gave them the utterance but apostolic Christian. The Holy Ghost wants to do more than give you a one-time sign of His indwelling Spirit. He wants to keep talking to you and talking through you all of your life. John chapter 14, Jesus said, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. When the Holy Ghost moves, that's Jesus talking. When the Holy Ghost prompts you, that's Jesus talking. When the Holy Ghost moves through you as you're worshiping God, that is just as much the voice of Almighty God as that voice on that glorious gold box at the far end of an ancient tabernacle. But we forget because we're used to it. We forget because we're Pentecostal and it's quite common. But let me just tell you and define for you what a privilege this is. In the Old Testament, man could not enter God's presence. Man couldn't come into the tabernacle. That's why they had a priesthood. 
Only the priesthood could go into the tabernacle to do ministry. Only the priesthood could approach the altar on behalf of the people and approach the labor on behalf of the people and go in the holy place on behalf of the people. And then only one man, only the high priest, on only one day a year could go in behind the veil into the holy of holies. Only he ever got to feel and see and hear what happened in the holy of holies. In the Old Testament, men could not enter God's presence. But in the New Testament, the Holy Ghost is the Shekinah glory of God inside of you. I know it's a Bible study. I know it's teaching. But I also know if that ever gets a hold of you, who actually is living inside of you and who actually is talking back to you when you pray and giving you promptings. And, and no, I don't think that every Christian hears the voice of God. And if you do, I respect you and God bless you. And sometime I need to talk to you. Because I don't hear the audible voice of God. But Jesus talks to me. <laughs> See, this is so dramatic, but this is eternal. That old tabernacle's been long ago packed up. That old tabernacle, they don't even know where parts of it are now. They think they know where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's worth flying to Israel if they ever dig that out of somewhere. They've rebuilt the candlestick. It stands in the Western Wall Plaza in a bulletproof plexiglass case. I've seen it. Touch the case, you couldn't touch the candlestick. It's beautiful, but it's nothing. It doesn't hold a candle to what I've got inside of me. Jesus talks to me. Jesus walks with me. Every once in a while, you just get these promptings. And uh, I think this is easier. Beverly corrected me again today. She said, stop talking about being old. So, I'm younger than elderly. But as you live for a while, if you do it right at all, that voice, it becomes so familiar to you that you can sense it. It's, it's like you can turn on a dime because it's like Jesus said, mm -mm. or Jesus said, right now, that. And it's not an audible voice. I'm not trying to be spooky or hyper, super spiritual. I'm just telling you that the Shekinah glory of God resides within his church. And we forget. And we don't value it the way we should, really. Oh, my. One last verse. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. This is Paul's prayer for the church. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glory of God lives within the church. Now, when we start over here in the tabernacle, if you could have been back there, we start here and we have to walk this way. We start at the brazen altar and then we walk through 
the brazen laver. That's a picture of baptism. And we go all the way here, and that's our vertical line. That's the salvation plan in a picture. We go all the way here to the Ark of the Covenant. So you can't get here until you've been here. We start at the altar. We start at repentance, and we go all the way through. And you can take every piece of furniture and you can pack it into the altar. The altar was so massive compared to the rest. That's how we approach God, through faith. But can I spin that for you before we leave tonight and tell you that when God wanted to approach us, he didn't start there. He started here. He lived in heaven with angels all around Streets of gold, worship 24 7, 365. That's where God lived. He started here. And when He wanted to approach us, He had to head this way. And He came here and He immersed Himself in flesh. He robed Himself in flesh. And then finally, that journey led Him here to the death of the cross. And just like you can take all of this furniture and you can put it all in that altar and I can tell you with authority that unless you repent, you can't get anywhere else with God because repentance, the altar of repentance is the first in important step in your relationship with God. In the same way, I can tell you this, that nothing else mattered until Jesus gave up all of that and he came and he humbled himself and the biggest thing on God's calendar was Calvary. You can pack every other facet of redemption into that one moment, that one event. The cross paid for everything. And that's why Paul said, I will glory only in the cross of Jesus Christ. As we proceed through this little series, we're going to talk about how this beautiful tabernacle is a picture of Jesus. Oh my goodness. And we're going to talk about how this actually is a picture of you. Now that is amazing. And we're finally going to talk about how it's a picture not only of you, but it's a picture of your prayer life. There's so much powerful truth locked up in this tabernacle. There's only two chapters in the Word of God on all of creation. There's 42 chapters on this little building. And because it's a little detailed and a little tedious, sometimes we overlook it. But we're going to take a little bit of time for about four Wednesdays, and I hope you'll be here for every one. But I wanted to start tonight with salvation because it really doesn't matter unless you've experienced salvation. It really doesn't matter. It's just Christian trivia. But if you've experienced salvation, oh my goodness, the riches of what Jesus has done for us. It just kind of washes over you sometimes. I'd like you to lift up your hands and your voice right now, and I'd like you to thank God for his gift of salvation. If you've been through that little journey that started with an altar and ended in the glory of God, you need to thank him for it. You've got one better than the whole Old Testament sacrificial system because the Shekinah presence of God for you doesn't rest on an ark 
where you have to go in, send somebody in, some high priest in one time a year. You can lift up your hands right now and the glory of God just touches you. You can lift up your hands right now and the glory of God just washes over you. You don't understand. See, you've experienced the tabernacle not as a point of history, but as a point of salvation. There's nothing greater or better than that. Oh my. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Would you just let the glory of God... Just imagine it in your mind, the glory that rested on that box between those golden angels that only the high priest could see. Can you picture it in your mind? That same glory is here in this sanctuary right this moment. And in that glory of God, there's healing, there's deliverance, there's blessing, there's power. Everything you need is found in the presence of God. Ha! <laughs> Whoo! <laughs> he can put back together what the devil has ripped apart. He, he can heal what the devil has hurt. He can mend what the devil has destroyed. Jesus can do anything. His glory is here tonight. His glory is here tonight. We got two minutes. We're not going to rush out of this. In fact, the glory of God might just want to speak because we've got the glory of God in us and every once in a while, He speaks through us. So we're just going to let that happen. Mendele Baha Sukoya Baha. Hey, Rebel.